0: a fellow at the Tikva Fund, and a second-year student at the University of Chicago Law School. We'll be discussing his paper, Hyperinflation in the Lodged Ghetto. I'll add a link to the paper in the show notes for the episode. Josh, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast.
1: Thank you, Professor. And today is International Holocaust Remembrance Day, so it is a apropos time to be discussing this topic.
0: I appreciate your joining the podcast to discuss this paper. And given the day and given the subject of your paper, I wondered if you could start our conversation by perhaps situating the history of the Wuch Ghetto in the history of the Holocaust.
1: When the Nazis invaded Poland that began World War II, the military objective was clear that they wanted Europe free of Jews. Within the Nazi bureaucracy, there was a divide on how exactly this was going to be achieved. Some were already calling for full extermination and a genocide. Others were looking more for an out-migration to forcibly round up the Jews and plop them in what they thought would be the island of Madagascar in the jungles there. While they debated what exactly to do with the Jews, they wanted them to be in a centralized location so that whether it was death or forced migration, they would be easily caught and move to that solution. Throughout Europe, Nazis organized and established over a thousand ghettos. And these ghettos operated usually with a Jewish council. The Nazis would forcibly appoint certain Jews to be liaisons and be the ones to carry out a lot of their orders. If they were to tell Jews, you have to go to a cattle car and be deported, they thought it'd be easier to have Jews who would be the ones actually enforcing that so the Jews would be more compliant. So that's the general history of the ghettos. And in Ludge, The city had one of the largest pre-war Jewish populations. There was about a quarter million Jews in the city, which was a third of the entire city. So when the Nazis established the ghetto in May of 1940 and throughout the ghetto's existence, there were over 205,000 Jews who had lived there, making it the second largest ghetto after Warsaw. It also was the longest lasting of the ghettos in terms of how long it actually was standing, and we'll go into exactly why that was. The Lodz ghetto was interesting in the sense that it was one of the largest, it lasted the longest, the cultural output was big, it was really one of the last standing remnants of Ashkenazi Jewish life before Hitler decimated it.
0: Could you talk about your and your co-authors' motivations for studying a specific aspect of the history of this ghetto, which is its monetary history? Could you introduce the project to the listeners? How perhaps you're building on the existing literature, you're focused on hyperinflation in this ghetto. How does that build on existing literature and what were the research questions that were motivating you and your co-authors as you embarked on this study?
1: This whole idea began in June of 2020. I was reading an article in Tablet Magazine about currencies in the Holocaust, that ghettos and concentration camps had their own currencies. And for me, someone who has personal and familial ties to the Holocaust and reads a lot about it, I was very shocked i'd never heard of this and it seems different than what you would expect i was reading this article and given my background at johns hopkins where i was a research assistant at the johns hopkins institute for applied economics where for years i was just calculating inflation rates using black market data of currencies from the north korean won to the Venezuelan bolivar being able to if you give me enough black market data I could calculate the inflation rate given the formulas that I had learned. When I first read this article, I thought this could be interesting. And maybe if I were able to calculate the inflation rates of some of the ghettos or the camps, I would have an interesting footnote in the historical record. By the way, inflation in this ghetto was 20% in this month. And given, as I said, large ghetto lasted the longest it also had the most sophisticated currency system so it was to Ludge that i started this project and i bought the main diary that existed as a daily chronicle of the ghetto and i'm looking through it and looking for all the black market prices i'm starting to mark down i see oh an onion on the black market in may of 1941 cost seven ghetto marks then I look a little bit later, the black market exchange rate between the ghetto mark and the Reichmark, which is a Nazi currency, was four to one in this month. So I marked down everything I have, and I don't have nearly enough data to have an economic study of any real scientific value. I thought well, it was an interesting project. It was a good try, but I'm interested in this. So Let me just read this diary. So I started the introduction. And in the introduction of the English edition of this diary, the editor notes that he removed all monotonous things from the diaries, original Polish, like prices on the black market. But I'm like, wait a minute, that's exactly what I need. I need the original black market data. So in a long story, and this is how I got Natalia and Peter on board, which was the two Polish co-authors, because I needed the original Polish and they helped me track it down and translate it and get all the data I needed. Once I had this, it looks like I have a good amount of data. I could maybe do something with this. And then I tracked down a bunch of other diaries from the ghetto that were found after the war, and. It turns out I had enough data. So what me and my co-authors did was mark down all the places we could get a black market data and convert it into inflation rates. And you asked about the original research questions. Originally, it was just, let's see what the inflation says. But over time, and, then, and I think as we'll discuss, it ended up uncovering previously ignored or unknown parts of ghetto life that were very interesting.
0: This study is partly an economic history of a specific ghetto in the context of broader Holocaust history, but it's also a study of hyperinflation, the economic history of hyperinflation. One of your co-authors has done work in this area before. Before we talk about the economy of this ghetto and the role of hyperinflation in life in this ghetto, could you talk about what the difference between inflation and hyperinflation are? Just how do we define these terms? And why is the latter, hyperinflation, a special concern in monetary policy and theory?
1: You'll see this all over the news and the economic literature. It's such a misused term, hyperinflation. I won't get into exactly how it came to be this, but the definition of hyperinflation is 50% monthly inflation. That is the threshold or higher, of course. That's basically the difference. And it's obviously still pernicious at 49% versus 50%, but the economic definition is 50%. And you asked earlier about how the study falls into the monetary literature. There is nothing like what me and my co-authors have done in the sense that of all the Holocaust currencies, no one has done a scientific study on actually calculating scientific data points and getting the inflation numbers. You'll hear them talk about, actually in the appendix to my paper, I do rip into one journalist who actually spoke about hyperinflation in the Ludge ghetto. But I said, you didn't actually measure whether it was 50% in a certain month. You just know that in the ghetto diaries, they were talking about inflation being such an issue. But to use that term, it has to be 50% monthly. And even in the news today, you'll see people talking about hyperinflation today in the American economy. We have 7% per year. That's nowhere near the definition of hyperinflation. And my uh, other co-author, Professor Steve Hanke, who's a mentor of mine, he has done work in calculating all the historical hyperinflations that have ever existed in history. The first one was during the French Revolution. From that point on, he has uncovered 62 official hyperinflation and he keeps an official list. That's the history of hyperinflation. It's obviously very pernicious. It destroys lives, destroys economies, obviously wrecks savings and is a real disruptor of life.
0: I'd like to talk about the economy of the Ludge ghetto, how did the Nazis structure or intend to structure the ghetto economy? Was this something that was centrally planned or was it more market-based? What was the purpose of the economy with this ghetto? And maybe if you could talk about the economic separation of the ghetto from the outside world. And then specific to this study, what was the medium of exchange within the ghetto and how did that medium of exchange emerge?
1: The story of the Lodz ghetto is unique. I mentioned that the Nazis set up Jewish councils, or known as Judenrat, in the ghettos, which were liaisons between the Jews and the Nazis. They're usually a head, a chairman of these Jewish councils, and they normally saw themselves in a negative light. They saw themselves as just doing what had to be done. If they didn't do it, someone else would. Try to alleviate a little bit of the horrors of what would happen if the Nazis directly intervened. But the head of the Ludge Ghetto, very interesting character, and his name is Mordechai Chaim Romkowski. And he doesn't like the idea, as I said earlier, that the point of the ghettos was just to be a place where the Jews sat as sitting duck's for the Nazis to decide what to do with them. He didn't like that arrangement. So he approached the Nazis with a plan. And his plan was he would convert the ghetto into a productive work camp that would produce goods for the German Wehrmacht, the German army, and would be so valuable to them that it would be worth something for the ghetto because the Nazis in all the ghettos were obviously spending more money on the ghetto in upkeep than they were receiving from it. So the Nazis were interested in this idea. In Ramkowski's mind, the notion was, and his motto was, work protects us from an." annihilation and that if the ghetto was so productive and vital to the German war effort, his Jews would be spared from extermination. So the Nazis extended Romkowski alone in the fall of 1940. He took this money and built the ghetto into a really productive work camp, factories, sorting sites, workshops, and converted everyone into workers. And this is why the ghetto lasted for so long. All the other ghettos of Eastern Europe were liquidated and sent to the gas chambers in 1942, latest by early 1943. Famously, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising was in April of 1943. But the Ludge ghetto lasts until the end of August of 1944. And had the Russians not halted their offensive right outside of Ludge around that time and liberated the ghetto, Rumkowski would have saved about 70,000 Jews that eventually actually met their fate in the gas chamber. Chambers as well. So there was an element of this that was good and could have worked. On the other hand, and this is why Rumkowski is seen a little bit negatively in the historical record, was that to turn the ghetto productive and to make sure that it was producing more for the Germans than the Germans were spending on it, he went through a very ruthless strategy, which was to deport knowingly to their deaths, all the people in the ghetto who were not productive. That meant the children, the elderly, the sick, the unskilled. A very sad speech to read, but in in September of 1942, he gives a public address and he says to the parents, mothers and fathers, give me your children. The question is not how many will die, but how many we can save, meaning that the children can't work. So we either have to kill them or they're going to kill all of us. So this was really the depth of the depravity of life in the ghetto. But essentially, that was the idea that it all had to be for production. Rumkowski was a self-described dictator. And his idea was that everything had to be for production or else it was putting the ghetto's survival at risk. So that meant that he centralized all of ghetto life within his administration. It was a ration system. You went to work, for 14 hour days in some boot factory and you would be given a small wage and that wage would be used for the official rations that he decided how much was in it. He decided where you lived in the ghetto. Everything was run through him. There was no official free market or private enterprise or anything. Small exceptions were times where he allowed some people to use some of the outskirts of the ghetto for food production, but it was negligible. And essentially, all was through his administration, all was centralized. So that's basically the formation of the ghetto economy. Now, the ghetto, of course, was in such a horrible state that illegally on the black market, a lot of these private initiatives and quote-unquote free market activity occurred, but none of it was allowed. So that's basically the way that the economy was set up. Now, regards to the medium of exchange. So this is where it gets fascinating. The Germans forced the Jews to establish a currency system, and this served multiple purposes. The first was that it would isolate them from the surrounding populations, right? If you only had a ghetto currency that had Jewish stars all over it and was very clearly Jewish and had no value outside the ghetto, you couldn't escape or try to smuggle and trade because why would anyone on the outside of the ghetto, Poles or Germans, accept your worthless ghetto currency? It also served for the Germans to exploit and get as much from the Jews that they possess as possible. One of the German leaders of the ghetto estimated that the Jews were hiding some 5 million German Reichmarks. And if you could only buy your food with the ghetto currency, you were going to exchange your hidden US dollars or German marks or Polish Slotti. You were going to exchange those for the ghetto currency so that you could buy food, or you would sell your hidden mink coat that the Germans wanted, you would give that up so you can get the ghetto currency. So the point was to exploit the Jews as much as possible with this currency. But essentially, the Germans did hand over to the Jews full control over how much was going to be printed, the money supply and things like that were fully operated by the Jews. And that's essentially the history and background of the ghetto economy and of the large ghetto currency, which was also the first of all ghetto currencies and the only currency to strike coins, some of which have been found and are very interesting. For a number of reasons, how the design came to be, the Germans were very influential in that. So it's a very interesting story. And that's how the ghetto operated.
0: In your paper, you talk about a lot of the economic constraints and privation that faced those living in the ghetto. Could you talk about that a little bit? And was it possible that trade from outside the ghetto could be used to bridge the gap between the internal production that was occurring or the internal provision of rations and the demand for food, for example?
1: The supply situation in the ghetto was one of the worst in human history. Starvation was absolutely horrendous. 25% of the ghetto dies in the ghetto, which was the highest mortality rate of any ghetto. It was so bad that in Chelmno, which was one of the extermination camps, one of the guys who was burying the dead bodies who had just been gassed, escapes from Chelmno and writes what he had just saw. One of the things he mentions is that when the people from the Lodz ghetto were gassed there and he was trying to bury their corpses... He was shocked at how emaciated these people were. This is someone who had seen thousands of bodies, but when the large ghetto bodies came in front of him, he was like, wow, these people were really starved. So the situation is horrendous. One historian says that only about 50% of the minimum Clark intake that is necessary for a human organism to survive was being supplied for the Jews. So the food situation is just absolutely horrendous. Stories of people stealing from their relatives for food, but dying of starvation in the streets. And it is really as bad as it gets, just skin and bones, skeletons walking around. It is really a horrendous situation. All that the ghetto factories were producing was for outside consumption. It was all for the Germans. What the Germans would do was give Rumkowski and the Jewish council a certain supply of food that Rumkowski would decide how much went to different workers or different people. The food that the ghetto received was absolutely pitiful, really just of the lowest supply possible. This was true in most ghettos, but the difference was in other ghettos, smuggling was the lifeblood. Especially in Warsaw, you had massive smuggling operations going on to bring supplies into the ghetto. But Ludge was perhaps the only ghetto that was so hermetically sealed. That there was nothing coming in, which includes goods and food, but also no information. In August of 1944, the Jews in the ghetto don't know that their fate ends in the gas chambers. But already by 1942, the people in Warsaw ghetto, which is not too far away, they knew clearly what their end was, which is why they led an uprising because they knew where their fate was headed. It was hermetically sealed for a variety of reasons how Romkowski was involved because he didn't want anyone challenging his authority. The Germans had really cleared a very wide area around the ghetto and put ethnic Germans around who would be less willing to help the Jews. As I mentioned, the currency it was something that the Jews could not really trade in the outside. It was as sealed as it gets, nothing in. As I wrote in the paper, there was only two ways out of the ghetto in a casket or a cattle car. As I mentioned, there were points where people were planting little plants of mini onions and things in parts of the ghetto, and that alleviated to a very small degree, but those barely worked. They were unreliable. And essentially, all you have in the ghetto is what the Germans were willing to give.
0: It's really against this stark set of human conditions that you embark on your study in hyperinflation in the ghetto, Mark. You talked at the top of the interview about some of the data sources that you used, but I wonder if you could talk about your process in calculating the inflation rates within the ghetto and maybe discuss some of your key findings.
1: I essentially mined all the primary sources I could find in the ghetto diaries, chronicles, things written in the margins of books that were found, everything I could get my hands on. And the fascinating thing is when you think about the Holocaust, especially on today, like International Remembrance Day, people are talking about the worst of the deprivations, the gas chambers, the mass shootings, and that was all a part of life. But when you read these diaries, and I was shocked, and this is how you mentioned earlier about what my motivations were, Originally, it was just to see if there was an interesting footnote in history. But as I read these diaries, I was shocked at how ubiquitous and full these diaries were with talking about inflation and prices. In the Amazon reviews of the diary of Henrik Fogel, who's a teenager in the ghetto, the reviews are pretty bad. The reviews say, what a boring book. Don't buy, really monotonous. All this guy talks about are prices and inflation. But in truth, that is what the ghetto life was. That was what people had on their minds. So as I'm reading through this, I just have a wealth of data and I was able to calculate the inflation rate of the ghetto in every month from January 1941 to the last month of the ghetto standing in July of 1944. I have a wealth of data. The Excel sheet that I have with every data point is like thousands of lines long. The methodology was threefold. I had three ways that I calculated inflation. The first was with a consumer price index, a CPI, where I took the upwards of 40 different goods that traded regularly on the black market and which I had consistent data for and weighed them based on how often they appeared in the data, how likely they were to have been sold in the ghetto black market and created a CPI basket that I measured over time. The second was a bread index, bread operated as a medium of exchange. A lot of times the the price data was in bread, right? I'll give you one piece of bread for a coat. I'll give you a piece of bread for a bowl of soup. I calculated a bread index, how bread changes its price over time. And just to give it a sense of just how wild it was, the range was 5.2 ghetto marks was what a loaf of bread in September of 1941. Towards the ghetto's close in summer of 1944, it had risen to 1,200 marks, which is something like a 23,000% inflation rate. It's quite wild to see that. And then the third was the one that I used as the more authoritative one, which was the black market exchange rate between the ghetto mark and the Nazi Reich mark. And this is the best mode of calculating inflation because it represents a totality of everything because when you're exchanging currencies, when you get the currency that you want to pay for something with applies to all goods, whereas a CPI basket necessarily excludes some things. If the inflation rate was over 50% on the exchange rate index, then I would conclude that it was an official hyperinflation as opposed to when it was just on the bread or CPI basket because I was missing certain things the data didn't have every single good that was traded. So I wanted to be sure that I had a totality. So that was the methodology. And I also calculated other things like the black market premium. So what was the official price of certain goods? So you have the Romkowski and the Jewish council will sell ration cards or sell goods from the official stores. And then what was that same good trading for on the black market? So you have, for example, at one point, a stick of margarine is trading for one ghetto mark. On the black market, it's trading for 950 ghetto marks, which is a black market premium, a differential of something like 95,000%. So you just see how wild the difference was and how vibrant the black market economy was to be trading in these goods. With
0: that study in mind, what were some of your key findings about the history of this ghetto, about the hyperinflation in the ghetto that might bear on the study of hyperinflation in general?
1: So as I said, one of my co-authors, Professor Hanke, has this list of 62 official hyperinflations in world history. In March of 1942, the Ludge Ghetto currency, based on the exchange rate index, surpassed the 50% mark, which means the Ludge Ghetto currency is the 63rd currency in history to hyperinflate. And this is an important historical finding. I have papers coming out about this that will officially add it to the historical record. That was the first major finding from a historical point of view. And another interesting finding was that because of the data that I was able to find, it elucidates parts of ghetto life that were perhaps unknown fully before. So for example, in Romkowski's New Year's address in 1942, he tells the ghetto public about the orgy of inflation and how we need to stop inflation It's such an issue. And that's, of course, what the people were clamoring about. But before my study, you would say, why now? What's going on? But I showed that in December of 1941, the ghetto inflation was tremendously high. In January of 1942, right the month that he's given that New Year's address, we have a hyperinflation on the bread and the CPI indexes. And that's just one example of being able to show how the data that I uncovered now allows the student of history to study the Ludge Ghetto With a little bit more knowledge of what exactly is going on, how are things affecting other movements in the ghetto, as I said, the diaries are just absolutely chock full with inflation. That's a large portion of what they were thinking about. I spoke to large ghetto survivors recently. When I mentioned the currency, the first thing they say is, oh, it was worthless. They remember that was a focal point of ghetto life. And with my numbers, you can now get a little bit of understanding. Another example is in May of 1942, Rumkowski and the ghetto administration announces that they are going to increase the official prices of everything, From between 50 to 100%. Now, if you're just reading this thing, why now? But again, my data for May of 1942 shows that on the bread and the CPI index, inflation was over 200% per month. So now you can understand the large ghetto in a way that you were not able to before. And in terms of the monetary findings in the ghetto, what I was able to uncover and what I found was that ghetto inflation was a monetary phenomenon. It was produced based on the supply of money outpacing the supply of goods. Now, this notion of monetarism or the quantity theory of money goes back a long time. Copernicus, the man who told us that the earth revolves around the sun, had also another interesting invention, which was the idea that inflation is a monetary phenomenon. Now, this was picked up by Milton Friedman, who famously said that inflation is everywhere and every place a monetary phenomenon. That is what this ghetto shows. Now, it's interesting for a number of points in how this came to be. First is when I look at the months of the ghetto, and I explain this in the paper, where I have the highest levels of inflation everywhere, the people in the ghetto themselves are explaining that it's a monetary phenomenon. When I first made this paper, I just calculated the data, and let's see what happens. I would say, okay, in May of 1942, we have an insanely high inflation. So let me just go back into the diaries and look for May. As I go through them, what do you know? They're talking about how there's a money glut, administration is printing money, or there's all this money coming in from the outside that's being exchanged for ghetto marks. And then I go to the next one, March 1942. What do you know? Again, they're talking about currency problems and how they devalued the currency. Every time that I went through the data and looked back into the primary sources, it was shocking to see that every single time the ghetto dwellers themselves noticed that it was a monetary phenomenon. An interesting way that this comes to fruition is February of 1944, we have an extremely high inflation, over 50%, and the people are a little bit freaking out. The Ludge Ghetto Chronicle, and I'm quoting now, says, Today it is not yet certain how many coins will be minted. Asked about the value of the 10 mark coins to be minted, the head of the central treasury, Salomon Sir, gave us a reply hitherto unheard of in the field of financial management. It depends on how much metal the department can give us. His response summarizes the situation. End quote. So essentially, the ghetto administration was printing too much money, and that led to inflation. What people talk about today, you'll see about inflation. They'll say, oh, it's about supply chains, or it's about demand. Joe Biden, the president, famously said recently that Milton Friedman isn't running the show anymore. Fed Chairman Powell said also that he doesn't even have money supply on his dashboard. Maybe that's why we have such high inflation. But this paper and the Ludge Ghetto story shows that it is a monetary phenomenon. It was about money print. Before I give too much flack to the ghetto administration, I do have to note that there were five other countries that hyperinflated during World War II under Axis control. That was Greece, Taiwan, China, the Philippines, Poland twice. And right after the war, Hungary had the highest hyperinflation in world history where prices were doubling every 15 hours. In all these places, Greece, Taiwan, China, Philippines, Poland, and Hungary, their supply lines, their mode of living was vastly superior to the situation in the Ludge ghetto. And yet, the Ludge ghetto, just in terms of inflation, outperformed them. Greece hyperinflated the entire time from when the Nazis first occupied them in 1941 till the Nazis left in 1945 the Greek drachma performed worse than the ghetto mark. The drachma's worst month, it had a 13,800% monthly inflation. The Ludge ghetto currency never approached anything near that. The highest we have is in the 200%. All the reasons that you would say for why you have inflation that's not based on the money supply in any other context was most acute in the ghetto. There is no currency in history that had fewer supplies at their disposal than the ghetto. There is no place in history that had a demand higher than in the ghetto. People would kill each other over a piece of bread. So you have all of the reasons why you would have hyperinflation or extremely high inflation. And yet, as you can see from the data in my paper, there were times in the ghetto for almost all of 1941 when ghetto inflation is pretty mild or it's stable and certainly doesn't approach anywhere near hyperinflation. What that shows is that you can regulate inflation. Now, had inflation been zero, if the ghetto administration perfectly matched the money supply to the supply of goods and inflation was zero for the entire ghetto's existence, would that have made hunger any worse? But the maladies of inflation, which really racked ghetto inhabitants for a variety of reasons. The official rations were a death sentence. You were given only a few pieces of bread to last two weeks, and that's why people were dying of starvation. Your only chance of survival is to get something off the black market. When hyperinflation makes a piece of bread cost 1,200 marks and your weekly wage is five marks, you have no chance to get that piece of bread. Inflation helped the Grim Reaper reap a lot more and really was disastrous for the people in the ghetto. So much so that there's a sad story where a man actually manages to escape. And I mentioned to you how hermetically sealed it was. This is one of the only stories I found of someone escaping from the ghetto once it was sealed. And the guy gets out, is at the train station ready to get out of Poland. And someone sees that he had stuffed the Jewish star that he ripped off of his jacket. He sees that it's in his wallet. And reports him to the police and they bring him into the ghetto for public execution. And this is early enough in the ghetto where these things were still shocking to the population. It was also on the Sabbath. The diary that I read this in talks about how the people were absolutely shocked and frozen and outraged by the fact that this man was hanged in front of them on the holy Sabbath. The man's children and wife are there crying and they're talking about how just absolutely horrifying it was to watch this. But the next line in the diary is, however, Soon after, conversation in the ghetto returned to inflation and prices on the black market. So ghetto life was dominated by these things. Inflation was a constant sort of Damocles hanging over the ghetto. And had the administration had a stronger appreciation for Copernicus, Milton Friedman, and the quantity theory of money – a lot of that could have been alleviated. Now, on the other hand, and this is why this stuff is so fascinating because so much of what we think about when we think about the Holocaust is just the way that people died. But this talks about how people lived and... How they struggled for survival and the different ways to which they endeavored and risked their lives to not go down to the grave. As I was reading this, I'm thinking, all right, inflation was always, no matter what was going on, inflation was always a problem that hurt everyone in the ghetto. But in the diary of Henrik Fogel, he talks about how actually some people in the ghetto liked inflation because think about it. If your weekly wage is seven marks, you basically can't buy anything on the black market. You're way too poor, especially when you have to spend most of that seven on the official Price of the goods to buy them. So you have nothing left. However, if a piece of bread costs 1,200 marks and you manage to save a piece of bread and sell it, now you have a lot more money. So some of the poor workers actually liked inflation because it allowed them a chance to participate in purchasing on the black market. Now, this was rare. And most of the people I read, even poor workers, still thought that inflation was a huge problem because it also affected the official prices at the official ghetto stores, though their wages usually didn't change. So inflation generally was. A horrible thing, but it allows you to think about maybe, what well, what I've done in the ghetto or what was it like? And it, it's a little bit more interesting to think about survival. And if you buy a piece of bread on the black market and then the price skyrockets soon after, right, you could then trade that and prolong your life. Or if you buy something and the price goes down, that, that could be a death sentence for you. Being able to massage and think about these numbers and how they play into ghetto life really allows you to transform your thinking of the Holocaust from one of just looking at from just what did the Nazis do to the Jews as opposed to how were Jews struggling survival? What were their heroic efforts to not give up? And even though they were working 14-hour days in horrific conditions, they still managed to produce a very efficient black market. And it was efficient for a variety of reasons, but it was well done in the sense that prices were fairly uniform, arbitrage opportunities were exploited, all the things that in the economic literature, they talk about what makes an economy work. The ghetto black market, even though if you were caught trading on the black market, you would be deported to a gas chamber immediately. Despite all of those risks and the starvation and everything, the ghetto black market survived and thrived and was a real testament to Jewish metal of the residents who were able to produce such a interesting corner of ghetto life. That is where I think the story comes to life. And I hope that your listeners will give it a read and then let me know what they think.
0: You mentioned that you've had the opportunity to speak with some of the survivors of the ghetto. How have those conversations informed your understanding and your research in this area, either in in this paper or perhaps future revisions?
1: The interesting thing about talking to these survivors is that when I call them and tell them I want to talk about the Holocaust, they assume that I want to talk about their time in Auschwitz. But when I talk to them about let me talk to you about the Lodz ghetto. They're initially, and them had even said, oh yeah, no one's asked me about this in a while. Because of course, Auschwitz was much more horrific. It's much more famous, much more murder going on. So it's something that people want to hear more about. And some of these people I've spoke to speak about the Holocaust regularly. They're on speaker circuits. But when I start to ask them about the Lodz ghetto, they are a lot more uncomfortable. A certain, in a number of the interviews, they asked me, I want to, let's stop this. I don't want to talk about it anymore. They're crying. It really unnerves them. But they are able to talk about Auschwitz even with a little bit more of, of a less emotional connection. And I think that reason why is because the Ludge Ghetto was the last time that these people were living with their families where it had a sense of normalcy. It was the last moment where their former life was still somehow going. I and mean, Auschwitz is so otherworldly. You're in striped pajamas, your heads are shaved. It's not even human existence, but the ghetto, you're still living with your families, so you're living in apartments, you're dressing in normal clothes. And it's the ghetto that reminds them of really what life was like and how much they've lost. It's the last time they saw all their families. It's where they saw their siblings starve to death and wither away. Talking to survivors really brought to life how crucial understanding the Ludge ghetto as one of the largest ghettos. Understanding ghetto life is for understanding the Holocaust itself. And I'm proud to say that given that, as I said, understanding the Ludge ghetto needs my data. And I think that understanding the Holocaust needs the Ludge ghetto. You can see where I think that these numbers and the inflation statistics allow a broader understanding and a more particular understanding of what life was like in the ghetto and how people lived, not just how they died. Josh, what would you like listeners to
0: take from this interview and from your study? And what would you like students of the Holocaust and the history of the Holocaust and students of hyperinflation as a historical and a theoretical matter to take from your study?
1: One thing is that specifics matter. If we just taught students a lot of Jews died in the Holocaust. How much grab does that have? But when you can say six million Jews died, even though that number is not really comprehensible when it comes to human life, but it allows you to put things into perspective and understand a little bit more about what was going on. And today being Holocaust International Remembrance Day, what do we mean by remembrance? Do we mean just a vague understanding that, yeah, the Nazis killed a lot of Jews somehow? Or do we want to know? And the Hebrew word that you'll hear a lot on these memorial days is the word zahor. It means to remember. But in Jewish literature, it's a lot more active. Jews are known for their very scrupulous keeping of the Sabbath. And the Hebrew word for that is is zahor, to remember the Sabbath day. But it really means to do a lot. And in this scenario, if we want to understand history, to understand the Holocaust, we need to know the specifics. We need to make it palatable for students to actually grasp what's going on. As Holocaust survivors are dying out, we don't have that close connection to anyone who was there, but we can grasp a little bit of what life was like in a way that will make it understandable. I want to close with, and this is also how I closed in the paper, a quote from Lord Kelvin, who in 1883 told the Institution of Civil Engineers that when you can measure what you are speaking about and express it in numbers, you know something about it. But when you cannot measure it, when you cannot express it in numbers, your knowledge is of a meager and unsatisfactory kind. It may be the beginning of knowledge, but you have scarcely, in your thoughts, advanced to the stage of science, whatever the matter may be. And Kelvin took that in his own life seriously because. Scientists knew that there was an absolute minimum temperature, the coldest possible temperature on Earth. But Kelvin said, let me actually calculate what exactly the number is. He was able to find that the coldest possible temperature on Earth is negative 459.67 degrees Fahrenheit. To know that there's a vague idea of a minimum temperature is not the same to know exactly what negative 459.67 degrees Fahrenheit is. And of course, none of us will ever experience negative 459.67 degrees Fahrenheit because we would die at that temperature. But it now allows you to think in a clearer way, especially as I was saying about survivors, they have an even a, a more difficult time talking about the Ludge ghetto because it wasn't in many sense a real life as we we're supposed to Auschwitz and the death camps were just so otherworldly because you have the trappings of normalcy. You have people going to work, wearing normal clothes, having a currency, buying, selling, It's something that we could actually understand. And now with the data that I've supplied, you can really get a grasp of what's going on. You you could say, oh, now, oh my God, the price of bread went up 15,000%. I mean, think about people going crazy today about eggs going up 10%. Now it allows you to feel and get a sense of the Holocaust in a way that maybe was not possible before. And as Kelvin was saying, we need to know what things are like. It's not the same to talk about, again, about the Civil War being a battle between North and South. You've got to know the people involved. You have to know the battles. That is what makes history interesting. It's what makes history noble. And if, if the job of a historian or of anyone interested in the past is to get a sense of what it was like, you need the specifics. And I hope that studies like these will enable the curious and meticulous student of history to make it rack their bones a little bit. And I know for myself, when I read these numbers, and I see that inflation went up 215% in one month, I could get a little bit of feeling of what the people in the ghetto were worrying about, what kept them up. And thankfully, and God willing, no one will ever know that feeling directly in their own lives again. But we can start to pick at the brain of a ghetto inhabitant a little bit. And I'm very proud to have been able to do that.
0: Our guest today has been Joshua Bluestein, a fellow at the TICFA Fund and a second-year student at the University of Chicago Law School. We've discussed his paper, Hyperinflation in the Lodge Ghetto. I'll link to the paper in the show notes for the episode. Josh, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you, Professor. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.